0: 4.6 billion
1: The Earth forms
0: Cambrian 542 million Complex life explodes Permian Triassic 251 million 90% of species
1: die Cretaceous Tertiary
0: 65 million Meteor kills the dinosaurs 55 million Primates appear 2.3 million Pleistocene 200,000 Humans 20,000 Agricultural 250 Revolution.
1: Industrial Revolution 60.
0: With Great animals. acceleration The Anthropocene Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, I'm Mike Osborne. And tonight, I'm feeding my children mangoes. What's mommy doing? Cutting a mango. Is she cutting it? I don't see a knife. Uh, no, she's right now, she's just cleaning it. Have you ever eaten a mango before? Uh-uh. Was that a yes or a no? Uh, a no. It was a no. You've never had a mango before? Mm-hmm. Are you sure about that? How old are you? Four and a half. I want to talk to you now, my son. Can you say hello? Hey. Uh, how old are you? Seven. Have you ever had a mango before?
2: Uh, I don't think so.
0: Really? We've never eaten a mango before?
2: I don't remember.
0: They say they've never eaten mangoes before, but I, I'm certain I gave them a mango at some point. All right, what's this?
2: All right, I'm about to cut a mango. I just looked up a how-to video because I have actually never cut a mango.
0: You know, I'm not sure I have either. Kids.
1: So this is what you call the cheek, the fleshy
0: part. And they have a really big stem, so you have to be kind of careful around that. Hey, sweetie, what color is that? It's green and red. And what about the inside? The inside is yellow. How do you know that this is something you want to eat? Well, it's colorful. I don't actually know because
2: I've never tried a mango before.
0: Well, how do you know when anything is good to eat?
2: Well, I actually have no idea usually.
0: (laughs) So one of the reasons I wanted to record that little scene with my kids is that I sometimes wonder how did our ancient ancestors, how did humans of the past figure out what to eat? I mean, obviously there's some trial and error to it, but what were we drawn to and how much of it was not just survival, but actually pleasure? I mean, I think we tend to think about ancient humans as being in a hostile environment uh, where they could be eaten by animals and where there's all kinds of things that could kill them and that it's all about survival of the fittest, right? And in those conditions, you know, you eat what you can and you eat what you must to survive. What if that's bullshit? What if what if you do some of that, but you also eat the really good stuff because it just looks and tastes good? What if the same psychology that we all wrestle with today about what to eat that tastes good versus what to eat that's good for you? What if that's been true for a much, much longer time? There's something I like about that idea. It sort of connects you know, modern humans with humans of the past. And in a way, it it, it means that there's a kind of shared, I don't know the right word, humanity.
1: I mean, humanity is exactly the wrong word, except it's the right sentiment. (laughs) Right, totally. And that brings us to
0: today's guest.
1: I'm Rob Dunn. I'm an ecologist. I'm the author of the recent book, Delicious with Monica Sanchez, which tells the story of the evolution of flavor and how it made us human.
0: The book is really all about how, for every decision we made in the deep past, we have probably downplayed the role that flavor and taste and the pleasure of eating actually played as we evolved and as we spread around the world. And what this book is really about is just how important of an instinct that is. So I started the conversation with Rob by asking him a simple question. What exactly is flavor? How do we define it?
1: So it's actually a big mess because the words we often use in our everyday lives are different than the words scientists would use. And then the other reason it's a mess is that flavor is kind of everything. So flavor is touch. So touch is mouthfeel. And mouthfeel is like a goofy chef word that sounds really weird, but it's actually a pretty serious component of how you make sense of what you eat. So if you imagine eating an avocado and that smoothness of the avocado that hangs in your mouth, that's its mouthfeel. There's taste per se, which is what your tongue perceives. So it's the taste receptors on your tongue. So it's sweet, it's salty, it's umami, it's bitter, it's sour. It's a couple other things like kukumi, but we don't have to go there yet. Also chemesthesis, which is a kind of like taste, but it's not taste. And so this is what you experience if you put a spicy chili pepper in your mouth and then bite into it. And that rising heat that's actually triggered by a different receptor that's not taste. It's actually your heat receptor or one of them. And the same thing is if you put a, something minty or put a mint leaf on your tongue and hold it there and it will cool your tongue. And that's also chemisthesis. And there are a couple other things there's the experience of tannins which is none of these senses but also part of flavor but then there's olfaction there's smelling and so when we think of smelling we usually think of what we smell in front of our noses like what goes up into our noses and is then detected but arguably more important in humans is when you have like a a piece of blue cheese on your tongue The chemicals from that blue cheese actually go via the back of your mouth into the back of your nose, and that's retronasal olfaction. And so that's part of the smell system, but it's actually happening physically starting in your mouth. And so all those things together are flavor. And you could also say, and and chefs would say that the sight of the food, like what it looks like is part of flavor too, if you want to stretch this, and maybe even the sound of the food, the crunch of the potato chip. The crunch of an ant. If you are eating an ant, maybe that sound is part of it all too. It's this big picture.
2: That's excellent. So I do want to focus on deep time and human evolution, but I think to get there, I want to ask a little about how our taste receptors compare with our closest living relatives today, chimpanzees and and maybe other primates. So how do our taste receptors compare with our closest living relatives?
1: So so taste is sort of our dumbest guide. It leads us towards stuff that we historically have tended to need and away from stuff that we've historically tended to need to avoid. The subset of the taste receptors that lead us toward what we historically needed, and so that's salty, sweet, umami, to some extent sour, those appear to be very similar in chimpanzees and humans. And and so that allows us to know that, well... In terms of the pleasingness of taste, just of tastes, what a, a chimp eats and what experiences and what you or I experience is pretty similar. The different part has mostly to do with bitter. And so bitter is a different kind of taste. And so if you're eating chimpanzee food, for example, some of what you perceive as bitter, a chimp does not perceive as bitter.
2: Um, One other similarity, I suppose, between uh, chimps and us is chimps do use tools and Tools can obviously modify what we can eat and and what it tastes like and what the mouthfeel is. I was sort of hoping you could walk us through how do tools change our experience of flavor? Yeah,
1: so, so it's a good question. So we tend to think of the tools that modern chimpanzees use as probably being pretty similar to what our ancestors were doing, say, 7 million years ago. Different chimpanzee populations use tools to do different things. Part of their culinary traditions interesting in and of itself and they're mostly stick tools with a few stone tools you know some of them are tools used to pound into the ground to get to ground nesting bees others are sticks that are shaped to pound into honeybees up in the trees others are sticks that are used to poke into termite nests and get out termites others are sticks that are used to sort of wiggle around in, in ants so the ants run up them and then you can suck the ants off them There's a long, long stick used by some chimpanzee populations to get algae, like you would get cotton candy on a stick, you know, you kind of wrap it around and then slurp it off. It's really a whole set of tools and they're made in different ways. And, you know, it's really this beautiful uh, portfolio of ways of, for the most part, eating. There's some exceptions, but for the most part, they're about eating.
2: Yeah. Um, I love how much ants come up. In this, by the way, eating ants. I don't think I've ever eaten an ant. Did you eat an, any ants getting ready for this? Yeah. I mean, I've,
1: over my career, I've eaten lots of ants. I mean, globally, they're super common. And I mean, we overlooked it for a long time because, I mean, the, the Western food tradition weighs heavily on what we understand about the evolution of food hmm. because Western scientists tend to look around and see the things that they like and anything they didn't like was w- weird or disgusting. Yeah. And sometimes that that meant they then reported on it as like an unusual thing, but often they just overlooked it. And so anthropologists very rarely, for example, documented the insects people were eating or they would say, oh, it's a starvation food. But when finally people started to ask indigenous peoples around the world, you know, tell me about the insects you eat. The answer was typically, yeah, we eat them because they're super delicious and we would eat them even if they weren't beneficial. And so, yeah, I've been thinking about ants as food for a long time, and many of them are quite delicious. One of my favorites are chromatogaster, and they're kind of like sweet tarts. They're a little sour, they're crunchy, sometimes a little bit sweet. Good.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. All right, well, let's talk about some other key tools. You know, we've talked a little bit about sticks. Uh, what else?
1: Well, so, so the, one, one of the great ones, and this has been studied by Christoph Bosch a lot, at Max Planck in Leipzig, is the use of a pair of stones to smash open nuts. And so not only this top stone that you hit the nut on the top with, but actually putting it on top of another stone. And these have been found archaeologically. So there's actually an archaeological sample of a pair of stones used by chimpanzees 2,000 years ago, but it allows them to take a nut that they couldn't otherwise get into and suddenly be able to eat it. And the nuts that they prefer are often super um, oily and delicious. I mean, think of like giant walnuts and pecans. And so what we started to realize as we were going through this story is that, well, it looks like these tools are really, I mean, very many of them about getting more tasty, more delicious foods than are otherwise available. And we thought about how could you possibly know that? And the good news was that chimpanzee researchers love to go and eat what the chimps are eating. And so there are actually a number of good studies where people have gone out to figure out, like, what does the average chimp diet taste like if you ignore the tools and it turns out to be pretty bland. But then all the stuff they get with tools, it's almost all much, much tastier. And so it really looks like the invention of tools is in part about getting these tastier foods. In the long run, those tastier foods might also offer more nutrition. You know, they might lead to m- more calories. You can evolve bigger brains, all these sort of things. But in the short run, the chimps not thinking like, if only I just invent a new tool, then I can evolve a bigger brain and get... I can get more calories. thinking, I love this, this is so good, I will go get more.
2: So I wanna talk a little bit about fire as a tool because I think people tend to think about in the ancient past fire as for heating and for keeping us warm, but in so many ways, it's gotta be about flavor and cooking. And so maybe you can talk to me a little bit about how important fire is as a, let's just call it a technological innovation in the ancient past.
1: Yes, so Richard Wrangham, evolutionary biologist, wrote a great book about this in which he argued that fire was the defining thing that sort of uh, fast-forwarded human evolution. And what's contentious about his argument is the timing because for him to be totally right, humans have to control fire like 1.9 million years ago. And the earliest good evidence for the control of fire is somewhere between 500,000 and a million years ago. Of course, super hard thing to show, but his line of argument about what fire offered to humans is actually not contentious. It's just contentious, when did they get what it offered? When did they get its benefits? Fire allowed our ancestors to take things that were relatively hard to eat and it made them more digestible. And so you think about roots, think about a sweet potato, roots, tubers, all all the related underground storage organs. A sweet potato, raw, It's not only not delicious, but most of its calories you can't get. Now you cook that sweet potato, you put it on a fire, you caramelize it a little bit. Suddenly it is both much tastier and you're getting more calories out of it. Think about eating a colobus monkey. You kill a colobus monkey, you go to eat it. It's raw meat, not all the calories in that meat are available and it doesn't taste good. I mean, there's a reason there are very few mammal meats that humans eat today raw. It's, it's actually very rare. And the, if you imagine that some of what our ancestors were eating was meat they killed or meat they found that was maybe day old or older, you know, fire also helps to kill pathogens. And so it helps to prevent our ancestors from getting as sick. Something that's cooked with fire is easier to chew. And so all these things come together. And what Rangam imagines is that those benefits are really important to our evolution because all of the big evolutionary transitions in humans evolve us needing lots of calories for big brains. But we also know they're associated with kind of weird atrophy. So our teeth get smaller. We become less able to chew hard to chew things. And our guts at some point that's really hard to know start to shrink. So we become less able to kind of digest, hard to digest things. And so fire looks as though it could be part of this story in a really central way of the evolution of our big brains or small teeth or short guts. And one of the things nobody argues with is that whenever this happened, that the proximate reason our ancestors would have started to use fire would have been because the things that were cooked tasted better pleasure was an important thing here the smell of cooking meat the complex aromas that emerge at some point they knew those and they liked them uh,
2: i want to shift and talk a little bit about the pleistocene megafauna extinction and i think you know my listeners are very familiar with humans show up on a new continent and you see a wave of megafauna extinctions i think i think most of my listeners are familiar with that story but You know, (laughs) this is a little bit of a funny question, but when you started imagining the migration of modern day humans to the Americas, did you get really curious about any extinct meals? Yeah, and, and I think in a bunch of ways.
1: I mean, I think as those first peoples were coming into the Americas, they encountered all these species they'd never seen before. You know, there were giant camels, giant sloths, mastodons, mammoths. You know, in the Caribbean, there were giant flightless owls. And and we forget that the forest, the grasslands, like they're menus. And we've stopped seeing them that way. But they're like, those are the possible things one can eat. So what do those things taste like? And were there some of those mammals with really unusual kinds of meat? Were there some that were extraordinarily delicious? What was that lost menu like? And this is really something that's not been considered, and and I think it's kind of a disservice to the Clovis and earlier peoples, and that by not imagining that they're making choices that partially reflect their pleasures, we, in that case, were denying them some of their humanity. And, mm-hmm. and so w- one of the conclusions we come to is that mammoths and mastodons were probably pretty darn delicious, and especially probably their babies and their feet. And we can get into more why we think that, but why that then becomes really interesting is that, Obviously, mammoths and mastodons are extinct, and there are a number of reasons that they might have been extra susceptible to extinction, but if they were really delicious, that would have been sort of the last layer of the cake of doom.
2: There was a great old Far Side cartoon where there's these two cavemen, and and there's a mammoth in the background that's dead, and it's got an arrow sticking out of its belly, and one of the cavemen is saying to the other, maybe we should write that spot down. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This this is the thing. I mean, we know the ancient and modern
1: hunter-gatherers, extraordinary sophistication for hunting and in many cases for cooking and preparing what they hunt. And so there's, there's no way that Clovis peoples who spend a big part of their day hunting and eating, that they don't develop all kinds of special ways, both for preparing food and for choosing what to eat. And to me, like one of the things that I always come back to is some of these Paleolithic peoples are making some of the greatest art in the history of humans on cave walls. Mm-hmm. And whatever that art means it is powerful. It's powerful today across cultures and time. And to imagine that, that a people capable of that kind of art are not also capable of enjoying the pleasures of the food at hand seems silly.
2: I mean, this, it, it's the key thing that we've been talking about throughout, this idea that pleasure is going to play a big role in how our ancestors approached environments and how we do it today. And to dismiss that is to overlook just this incredibly important driving force. Since you teased it, let's talk about mastodon feet briefly. Why would they have been tasty?
1: Well, so Ram Barcai, who's a paleoanthropologist, is the first one to argue this. and He points out that modern evidence of people hunting elephants turns up again and again they preferred the feet of elephants. And it's true of hunter-gatherers who hunted elephants. It's true of French colonist explorers who were on hunts and ate elephants. And then you often even see in archaeological sites cases where something different has happened to the feet. They're not in the same place as the rest of the body. I kind of think uh, like a Chinese pig knuckle and vinegar with a little bit of a sweet sauce, super highly prized, maybe a little bit like that, except it's giant. And part of what's there in that pig knuckle is you're getting some of the foot pad, which is soft and cooking, and you're getting some of the same thing potentially with a mammoth or mastodon.
2: Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the stinking toe tree. Great name or nickname for a tree. There's a really interesting story in the book. This is a little to the side about uh, flavor, but it does speak to consequences of the megafauna extinction and how we understand landscapes today. So, can you just introduce us to the stinking toad tree? What is the fruit, and and what's the story here?
1: So, the stinking toad tree is one of a number of trees in tropical Americas. It was noticed by Dan Jansen to have great big fruits. And in this case, the fruits are, are pods. And in the pods, there's a sweet fruit around a big seed. And it's described as being like molasses and anchovies all in one. In a um, good way. <laughs> in, a, in a good way. Yeah. In, in a sometimes good way, right? I mean, that seems like something that could go bad. Yeah. And one of the things Jansen noticed years ago is that trees with these really big fruits didn't seem to be getting dispersed. And so just a teensy bit of backstory on the biology. The, the one thing in nature that really wants to get eaten is fruit. So fruits evolved to attract animals to eat them and carry their seeds to new places. And, and so the mystery of these fruits that Jansen sees is that even though they're big and seem to have all this food in them, they're not being taken away and many of them are falling on the ground and getting eaten by rats that are probably not dispersing them and insects that are drilling holes in them. And so there's this real kind of mystery. And this mystery is being considered at the same time that the Pleistocene megafauna story is starting to be worked out. And what Jansen comes to argue, and then Marshall evidence for, along with Paul Martin, is the idea that what these fruits are, what the stinking toe fruit is, but also many others, is their fruits that evolved to cater to, to woo and reward megafauna. And the reason they're not getting dispersed is that the megafauna have gone extinct. So that then features in our human story in kind of two ways. I mean, one of which is the agency we have in whatever role humans in different regions have played in extinguishing the megafauna. But the other is what's left over are these big fruits, a subset of which happen to be extraordinarily delicious to us. And so then one really interesting question that we talk about in the book, and there's not a great answer to it. Why are some of these delicious to us and some not? And that undoubtedly relates to the match of some megafauna to us and not others with regard to our taste receptors and olfaction. You know, mangoes, durians, jackfruits, all the melons, cucumbers, apples, pears, many of the fruits we most like evolved to attract big mammals. And then each one of those also has a kind of mystery because in some cases we know what might've eaten them, but in other cases it's not as clear. like avocados are this amazing mystery because they evolve to attract something, not just by being sweet or by being big, but they're fatty, mm. they're really fatty. And so who are they attracting with that? And I would say there's not a great understanding but one really intriguing part of this mystery is that it's not pretty well documented that one of the groups of animals that becomes very abundant or more abundant in avocado orchards is uh, cats. So margai, ocelot, even jaguar, huh. uh, and they all eat avocado so it raises this intriguing possibility, like, was there an extinct animal that was more like a cat with regard to its pleasures? Are these cats actually more important for dispersal that we know? It, it's totally unclear. And the, the great part of this mystery is, what is it that a cat likes about the avocado? And what's intriguing there is that one of the things we like so much is its mouthfeel. Yeah. And then some of the aroma molecules go up to our nose and so you get that avocado smell, but the feel. Yeah. And, and so is it really possible that this fruit evolves to woo species by just feeling good in the mouth, which seems so whimsical and ridiculous and yet might actually be the answer, but, but we don't know.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. So I, I guess what I just love about that stinking toe Story is the. Uh, it's almost sad that there's this tree that produces this fruit that may very well have co-evolved with an animal that no longer exists, and it just it makes you think about biodiversity and, and forest ecology in a different way. You know how might the landscapes and the environments we discover today actually have been the the, the relic uh, of something that that the environment no longer is. It's It's anthropocene to me that way. I did want to ask briefly about spices, because you know, fruits kind of make sense to me that evolutionarily they're there to it, it kind of works like as a, you know, this is sweet, come eat me, and then I shall be dispersed. Spices, that ain't the story. You have this line in the book where you say to employ a spice is to ignore nature's admonishments. What does that mean? Yes. I mean, so most of the plants
1: we use as spices, the active ingredients, the chemicals that we're featuring in their use are defenses. And so think about mint, oregano, rosemary, garlic, onion, almost any spice you can list. The thing we use that spice for is something that evolved to ward animals off, to say like, This is dangerous. I will kill your babies. Do not eat me. (laughs) And and so I think we're so used to spices that we don't realize that they kind of need more of an explanation than fruit. I mean, fruit evolved to attract us. But all these things we eat as spices, they evolved to warn us off. And I think onion and garlic and all these alliums are a good example here. Because, because you know, the onion, you cut it, it actually makes you cry. And it's not an accident. That's actually, the onion evolved so as to cause burning and unpleasant sensations in anybody that would eat the onion. And so why do we hold up the onion and go, yeah, if I eat this, my eyes are going to burn and I'm going to cry. I'm going to eat it every day. And so what's happening there? And it seems like it's a whole suite of things. And You know, for chilies, maybe it's partially what Paul Rosen calls uh, benign masochism, which is the... The idea that there's a kind of pleasure we derive from an experience that seems as though it's dangerous, but it's not. It's like uh, going to a scary movie. You you know that like n- nothing bad is really going to happen to you, but you still get a little bit of the rush, as almost as though it it did. And so maybe some of it's about that. But actually, my lab works some on the idea that some of this is about, and this is Paul Sherman's original idea: is that some of it's about using these spices as a kind of medicine. Mm. And if we look cross-culturally, the connection between food and medicine is much less black and white than it is in Western culture. And so you can imagine that you add garlic to a recipe to, to change its attributes. And one of the most obvious things there is that it helps to prevent the food from rotting. There are A lot of sort of microbially active compounds in garlic and onion. So you make a big pot of something, you don't have a refrigerator, You'd still like to eat a little bit tomorrow. If it's got garlic and onion, it's more likely to stay safe. And then the other thing that happens is once we have agriculture, the spices are also kind of a, they add a dimension to food. And so if you add enough that it's not dangerous, but that it still sort of makes it a little bit more complex, maybe it makes a bland, starchy world a little less Mm. bland that we don't actually know a lot about this in an archeological context. And, and so I think it's, we're really just beginning the oldest clear cut evidence of spice use is from a time just before agriculture in Northern Europe. And, and so we're just starting to get a window into it.
2: Well, so there's so much more in the book. One of the things I'm really omitting from this conversation is fermentation and different ways in which that plays in. So I'll just leave that as sort of a little teaser for the audience because I, I do hope they, they get the book. I, I want to wrap up with a little bit of a big picture thought and really returning to this theme we've returned to again and again throughout the conversation about what an, an important instinct flavor seeking is. One of the ways in which I feel like this book has an Anthropocene framing for me, is that a theme we explore over and over on the show is consumption and overconsumption. Consumption of fossil fuels, consumption of natural resources, consumption of animals. And I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, Rob, other than to say that what I feel like you and Monica have done here is help us think about what an important Force that is in the past, in terms of how humanity spread around the globe, and then how humanity today exploits nature. And one of the core tensions of global environmental change today is trying to curb some of our instincts so that we don't ruin the planet while also honoring what we are as a species and what propels us and what drives us. So I don't know where you would take that, but I'd be curious to hear how you might react to that idea.
1: You know, it's it's very interesting. I'll come up with a better way of thinking about it in six hours, you know, or when <laughs> I it's done to, to eat later. But a kind of bifurcation though occurs to me. And one part of that bifurcation r- relates to taste in and of itself, just taste, not flavor as a holistic sense. And if we look at the way taste has interfaced with the industrialization of the world and the great acceleration, one of the things that we see is the industry has figured out exactly how to produce those things that our tongue wants in their sort of most elemental form. Mm. You know, if you look at crops today, the what are the crops that are becoming more common? Well, sugar crops and oil crops, right? So you got sweet taste receptors and you've got mouthfeel. That is our tongue and our sense of touch interfacing with the technological world. And that will continue to lead us astray if we just follow this dumb, the dumb tongue The other part of that bifurcation is, I think, the holistic view of flavor that includes the ability of flavor to incorporate all of these complexities of learning and to learn to appreciate different things. And the hope in thinking about our global food systems is really around how do we engender a food system in which we reward ourselves with the pleasure of appreciating foods made in sustainable ways, foods which are very often going to be richer in flavor. You know, think about a complexly fermented food versus not to single out Cheerios, but let's say some Cheerios, right? Cheerios have like one aroma molecule that we learn to love and they have sugar. I mean, that's like (laughs) it. Right. And, and and so I think a productive route, which I won't fully unravel today, is thinking about how do we use our ability to learn to love some complex things to favor the love for a kind of complexity that's sustainable? That's far more likely to be about local connections to food, local connections to farmers, local connections to making food, an awareness of the processes of making food than it is about industrial simple solutions, and and so I I think in that bifurcation is maybe some productive ground for n- new conversations, not simple answers.
2: Well, and you know the other thing all that makes me think of is just how much this this instinct to seek out flavors and pleasure is also so much about discovery, and sometimes I think we fall into the trap of feeling like. We understand everything there is to understand that we've conquered the planet, that we've been everywhere there is to go, that nature holds no more secrets, and that's bullshit. There's still yeah. a lot out there to to be explored, discovered, and uh, sampled and tasted, I'd like to think.
1: So. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, the, the darkness is immense, our light is humble, and uh, it just so happens that we don't tend to be humble.
2: Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Professor Rob Dunn, congratulations on the book. You and Monica really did uh, a wonderful job on it and I encourage people to pick it up. Oh, th- th- thank
1: you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it and uh, appreciate the show and, and uh, thanks to your listeners.
0: Thanks again to Rob Dunn for that conversation the book that he co-wrote with Monica Sanchez is called Delicious. Thanks also to Harper Carlton for helping produce this episode. And thank you for listening. I'm Mike Osborne. I'll see you next time.